0: Okay. In, in your bulletin, you may notice you've got a little insert here. <clears throat> if not, uh, we can get you one. There's a QR code on here. Everybody know how to use a QR code? If you don't, um, if, you, if you've got a cell phone with a camera on it, and probably all of you do by now, most of you do, but uh, you could just hover your camera over that little QR code and it'll take you to Word of Messiah Ministries. And I'm excited about Dr. Sam Nadler. He's going to be with us on March the 10th, um, explaining the significance of the Passover with us. You won't want to miss it, so in- invite your friends. it be a wonderful time in the Lord, and that is a fantastic ministry that He has. On Wednesday nights, we've been studying the book of James, and uh, I didn't plan it this way, but uh, Wednesday night, we talked about how to overcome or how to handle test and temptation, and it just so happens that today's message in Genesis uh, is going to be right along with what we studied about Joseph. is a perfect example of how to handle temptation. Now, one thing we want to keep in mind as we're reading about Joseph, and uh, I think he and Daniel are about the only ones in the Scripture that there's really nothing negative that's said about them. They they are exemplary lives, and uh, so, uh, but but keep in mind that even so, they were not perfect. And they were not sinlessly perfect, and so uh, the grace of God was with Joseph, and so that's that should be our takeaway: is that the grace of God was with Joseph, not that he was a perfect, although he was an exemplary character. But uh, and I say that because we can get discouraged when we read about Joseph and we read about Daniel, and I don't know about you, but I think, wow, I'm nothing like Joseph. Uh, I'm you know I'm more like whoever uh, you know pick your. Uh, most nefarious Bible character. I don't know, but uh, I, I'm not much like uh, Daniel or Joseph. So, but I can still glean from that because I understand the real secret to their success is that the Lord was with them, okay? Amen. It's the grace of God. So it is with us. And then I think in Romans 15, you don't have to turn there, but Paul said we study these things in the Old Testament because they serve as examples of encouragement for us because they're people just like you and me. Now, one thing I love about the Old Testament is it shows the characters, again, with the exception of Joseph and Daniel, it shows them with warts and all. You see Abraham lying about Sarah. Uh, Jacob is tricking, and uh, Isaac lied about Rebecca. And, you know, we, Noah has that infamous episode after the ark. And, and uh, so all of these guys in the Old Testament that are heroes of faith The Old Testament shows their warts, you know, it shows the cracks in the armor. But when you get over to the New Testament, there's none of that stuff. Even Lot, have you ever read in the New Testament, it says Lot was a righteous man? And you read in Genesis, and you're like, is this the same guy we're talking about? What has happened, what happened was Calvary. See, those Old Testament saints, they were saved on credit. They were looking forward to what Jesus would do. But see, the New Testament is looking back on what Jesus did and what Jesus did on that cross is he paid it all, hallelujah. And so he expunged Lot's record. We can still learn from his mistakes, but thank God that stuff's not hanging over him. He's been made righteous because of the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus. And we're not talking about Abraham's failures. We're not talking about Isaac's failures. We're not talking about anybody of the Old Testament's failures per se. We're just talking about their faith because that faith is what saved them. And now the blood of Jesus has Expunged their record, so to speak. All right, I'm about to preach about some other stuff here. <laughs> Hallelujah. All right. But that's why we study this, it's because we can learn from their example. So we're in Genesis 39. Now we skipped Genesis 38, and I did so for a number of reasons. Number one, I wanted to continue with the Joseph narrative. Uh, another, uh, another reason that's probably obvious to any of you who have ever read Genesis 38. Is is a rather sordid tale to be telling in mixed company, and uh, but it's there. Judah is the he's the the royal line of the Messiah, but I I think what we're, but don't think it's misplaced. Some people say, well, what, why was Genesis 38 even inserted there? It's there for a reason, and it tells us what's going on Amen. while Joseph's in Egypt. You know, it gives us what's going on back home in Canaan. But it also is a contrast and a comparison, more of a contrast than a comparison, a contrast between the morals of Judah and the morals of Joseph. And that will be quite evident as we go through our, uh, our text today. We're in Genesis 39, and we're going to be talking about Joseph's test and temptation, but the title of my message is, The Lord Was With Joseph. Would you ask God's blessing upon the reading? Amen, Genesis 39, I got some alliterated points today. Uh, They're all going to start with the letter P. I feel like Sesame Street. Today's letter is the letter P. But they're going to be several points, but don't be nervous. They'll go faster than a three-point sermon, I promise you. Um, When I've got ten points, they always go faster than the three-point sermon. I don't know why that is. I've only got nine, though, I think. Okay, enough of that. Verse 1, Joseph was brought down to Egypt. So I want to talk, first of all, about the providence of God. Now, uh, it may seem like things have gone astray or askew because uh, Joseph has been sold into slavery, but this is right in accordance with God's plan because in Genesis 12, or 15, you don't have to turn there, God had promised that the nation of Israel that they would go down and be slaves for 400 years. So they're going to, the providence of God, this story tells us how that they they went from being a family. There were 70 souls. Interesting number there. uh, That's the number of nations that are found in the table of nations in Genesis 11, uh, 10 and 11, but uh, I'm not gonna get into all that. But there's 70 of them, and from those 70, they become a great nation. By the time they leave Egypt, their their number is around 2 million. um, A million and a half conservatively, but anyway... (laughs) They've they've greatly multiplied. So this is about the providence of God. So they've come down to Egypt, and he's brought unto a man named Potiphar, and says he's an officer of Pharaoh. The the Hebrew word is Saris. It can mean a eunuch or a uh, chamberlain, but in 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 any event, he is a trusted official of Pharaoh. So isn't it just uh, an amazing coincidence that Joseph just happens to uh, to find his way to an important person in. Uh, Pharaoh's uh, entourage are there any accidents in God's kingdom no this is the providence of God and it says that he was the captain of the guard now the Hebrew word for captain of the guard here uh, it it literally means chief of the executioners and that's going to be important as we get in our text the word there is from the Hebrew word that means slaughter so he's charged with killing people Uh, he's the chief of the executioners and it says, he bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down hither. Now, what we're going to find out is that Potiphar got a real bargain for Joseph. He only paid 20 uh, pieces of silver for him. But this guy's worth more than his weight in gold, as we're going to see. The next thing we're going to talk about is the prosperity of Joseph. Notice verse 2. It says, and the Lord. I'm going to ask you this. In your Bible, is the word Lord in all capital letters? If it's not, you need a new Bible. It should be. And that means that we're using the Hebrew name, excuse me, the covenant name for God, which is Jehovah or Yahweh. Okay. So whenever you see Lord in all caps, understand this is the covenant name of God. Now in chapter 37, the name of God was conspicuously absent, wasn't it? No mention of God when they're in the promised land in Haran, excuse me, in uh, uh, Dothan and Hebron and, and those other, look, Shechem. But now Joseph is in Egypt, but what we find out is that even though Joseph is not in the promised land, he's in Egypt, who's with him? Jehovah is with him. So, and we're going to see the name Jehovah here, the covenant name for God, about eight times in this one narrative. So we're going to look at the prosperity of Joseph. Now, the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Again, I will reiterate, the fact that that Joseph was prosperous, the secret to his success is that Jehovah was with him. And that's the secret to your success too, my friend. Now, Joseph, he could have felt sorry for himself. I mean, after all, he's had a tough break. He's far away from home. He's in a a strange place, strange customs. His brothers have betrayed him. Uh, he, He probably would love to get a message out to his father, you know, let him know I'm still alive. But Joseph, but rather than sitting and soaking and souring, Joseph went to work. And what you'll find, my friend, is in your discouragement and your disillusionment, if you will find a way to dig in and get busy for the Lord, you'll be a lot less depressed. You'll you'll be a lot more joy-filled. And guess what? God will use you. That's what we're going to find here, is that no matter where you find yourself in life, God can and will use you. If you'll open yourself up to him. See, we think God can only use this in a big assignment. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Joseph has got big plans. God's got big plans for Joseph. At at one point, in some point in the future, not too distant future, Joseph is going to be the the prime minister of Egypt. He's going to be the second in command to Pharaoh. When Joseph rides, they're going to say bow the knee to Joseph. He is about to become an extremely important person. But before he can handle that, God's got to do some character development in him. And I'm going to tell you something. God will never use you in a big way, in a big visible way, until you're willing to be faithful in humble circumstances where nobody sees what you're doing. Nobody's giving you an attaboy. Nobody's giving you the acknowledgments and saying, hey, you're doing a great job. But if you'll just be faithful and understand that God sees everything. The Lord was with Joseph, And that was the secret to his, his success. Now, we see in verse 3, Potiphar, and by the way, Potiphar's name means the gift of Ra. Ra was the sun god of, of Egypt. So Potiphar, he is the gift of Ra, but notice what he says. His master saw that Jehovah was with him. See, he worships the sun god. He, that's, that's what the Egyptians do. They've actually got a pantheon of gods. But, but uh, Potiphar notices that Jehovah is with Joseph. Joseph has a testimony with Potiphar, much like Daniel had a testimony with uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Very striking similarity there. He saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord, again, Jehovah, made all that he did to prosper in this hand. Wow. Everything Joseph touched, pardon the expression, he had the Midas touch. Um, and, and he was an, uh, an amazing person. Notice in verse Four, Joseph found grace in his sight, in the sight of Potiphar, and he did what? He served him. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? Become a servant. Jesus taught the disciples the last night of his life. He taught them one of the most important lessons they would ever learn. And what did he do? He didn't tell them how to build a big church. He didn't tell them how to win friends and influence people. He got a towel out and a basin, and he began to wash their dirty feet. And he said, you don't understand what I'm doing now but afterward afterward you will. And if you do these things, happy will you be. So he's serving faithfully in humble circumstances. Now, verse five, it came to pass from the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, that the Lord, again, Jehovah, blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. So notice that. The Egyptian is now being blessed for Joseph's sake. And I'm gonna tell you what. Uh, you, you serve the Lord, and you may not have uh, uh, all of your family members saved, but you faithfully serve the Lord, and God will bless your house for your sake. You know, some of us may be living in a, in a marriage with an unbeliever. We may be dealing with uh, unbelie- unbelievers on our job. Uh, I had a guy complain to me one time because uh, he was the only Christian on his job. He said, "I don't know why God's got me here. I'm the only Christian on my job." I said, "Can you just step back and say that again, and listen to yourself?" I wonder why God's got you there. You're the only Christian there because he wants you to witness to those people. And so so they're blessed because of that, because of the presence of Joseph. (laughs) Now notice this is also about um, um, he had blessed all that he had in the house and in the field. Now what we see here is the outworking of the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is a unilateral covenant, meaning that God's going to fulfill his obligations regardless of Abraham's obedience. It's a unilateral covenant. Very important to understand because uh, the so-called Palestinians who who try to claim right to that land today, they have no right to do so because God promised that land to Abraham and to his descendants, to Isaac and to Jacob and so on. But what we see is the outworking of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, in Genesis 12, we see several things. Mark, would you be so kind as to read that for us?
1: Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, into a land that I will show thee. Genesis 12, 2. And I will make thee of thee a great nation, And I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. Verse 3. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed.
0: All right, so we see the outworking of that here in Potiphar's house. Potiphar is being kind to Joseph, and guess what? God is blessing the house of Potiphar because he's blessing Joseph. He's giving him responsibilities. He's He's giving him... Uh, a decent life even though he's a slave he's given him responsibilities and also God promised to make of Abraham a great what a nation and that's what he's also doing he's taking them from being a family to Egypt where they're going to become a nation so God's promises are unfolding and so it's important that we know history right okay back to Genesis 39 verse 6 it says he left all that he had in Joseph's hand now that's that's an incredible statement. Everything in his hand. And he knew nothing that he had except the bread which he did eat. Now the idea here is not that he didn't trust Joseph with his food. The Egyptians did not eat with the Israelites. It was an abomination to them. So that's the only, th- that's the only reason the bread is mentioned there. But he, he's got a man. Imagine this. This is every employer's dream. In Joseph, he's got a man that he doesn't have to watch, he doesn't have to uh, supervise him at all. He just leaves him in charge. If you got somebody like that, if you're an employer, man, treat him like gold. I mean, hang on to him. Uh, and if, if you're an employee, you ought to seek to be like Joseph and make yourself invaluable, invaluable to your employer. Don't look to cut corners. Um, You know, it's sad to say, but a lot of times people who call them, they go out of the way to let me know that they're a Christian businessman. A lot of times they're the most shysters out there, the biggest shysters out there. Uh, And they just throw the name of Jesus out there. But if you're a Christian, you ought to be the best employee that your company has. I didn't get any amens, but that's the truth. If you are a believer, you ought to be the best employee that your company has. They, you shouldn't be the one that's always looking to take a long lunch break and a long coffee break and, and coming in uh, went, went, you know, any, any hours of the day or whatever. You ought to have a good work ethic to where everybody can look and say, that guy is a Christian. He's a Christian. Uh, I used to work with a guy, and he was the biggest Christian in the company. And by that, I mean he was always telling everybody what a big Christian he was. And he would preach all day long on the job. I mean, he was just always quoting scripture and preaching. But he was the laziest guy we had in the warehouse. And finally, the boss said, "I, I want to tell you something." He said, "I didn't hire you to preach. I, heard, I hired you to work. You know, if God's calling you to preach, go ahead and pastor. But I hired you to work in a warehouse, and uh, and we need to be mindful of that. But but Potiphar had somebody that was invaluable. He didn't have to watch anything. I, you know, what a dream to have an employee." You don't have to worry about anything because they're going to take care of everything. All he had to worry about was what he was going to eat for lunch. Wouldn't that be great? I mean, my goodness. How about that, Brother Lynn? It's your company. Is that the only thing you have to worry about is what you're going to eat for lunch? <laughs> well, you've worked your way into that, I guess. So, All right. <laughs> you know, is it going to be Cracker Barrel today or Quincy's? I don't know. That's... <laughs> He's got a Joseph. We'll see there. And if you've got a Joseph, then you can you know, focus in on what you're going to have for lunch and not so much that other stuff. But anyway, now ver- the end of verse 6 is setting us up for what's about to happen. Notice it says, and Joseph was a goodly person and well favored. He was handsome and he was well built. He was, he was in great shape. So if you're needing a visual image, just look at me right now and you just see uh, why are you laughing? Why are you laughing? <laughs> it, it, that was a joke, of course. Here's an interesting thing. That same phrase is used to describe his mother,
1: Rachel. Would you read that, Mark? Genesis 29, verse 17. Leah was tender-eyed, but Rachel was beautiful and well-favored.
0: Now, poor Leah. Who knows what tender-eyed really means in Hebrew? I'm not sure. But anyway... Rachel was beautiful in form and in appearance. And I have to just think that uh, one of the reasons that Jacob was so fond of Joseph is every time he looked at him, he saw that wife that he loved so much. Um, she, was, she was beautiful. It's, it's amazing to me, the people of God, how, how good looking they were. The Bible says that Sarah was so good looking that Abraham had to lie and say she was his sister. And she was in her 80s. And you've got these men falling after her, these kings and pharaohs and, and, uh, and princes that are trying to steal Sarah away and put him in the harem. She's beautiful in her 80s. She's a heartbreaker, a head turner. Uh, Rebecca is said to be beautiful in the Bible. Rachel is beautiful. And now we see that Joseph is beautiful. Who else is beautiful? Guess, guess who? King David. That's how he's
1: described uh, in, in Samuel. Would you read that, Mark? Or Samuel 16, verse 12. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and withal of of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Mm. So King
0: David's beautiful. One other guy is described that way too. His name's Absalom. But Absalom's problem was he was pretty on the outside but not too pretty on the inside. And we know even with David, God chose David not because of how he looked on the outside. Remember when God told Samuel, he said, don't look on the outward appearance. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks where? On the heart, on the heart, yes. Okay, so now, my next point. We're talking about the persuasion of Potiphar's wife, verse 7. It came to pass after these things. What things? His promotion, his success. You know, you're most susceptible to temptation after success. Did you realize that? Uh, when you're down in the pit, you're not so susceptible to temptation because you're dependent on God and you're seeking him. But in times of prosperity, that's when you have to be careful, when you've been raised up. It came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph. There's something about the eye gate, isn't there? In Genesis 3, Satan, the serpent, is talking to Eve, and it says she saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and she looked and she looked and that became a, uh, an occasion for her finally to, to yield to that temptation. And she, she set her eyes upon Joseph and she said to him, lie with me. We don't need any, me to expand on that, do you? She's wanting to have physical relations with him. <laughs> now, I want to talk about the purity of Joseph. The purity of Joseph. Notice in verse 8, it simply says "But he refused. He didn't say, I'm so flattered. Um, you know, my, my family doesn't really appreciate me, my beauty, but you see me for who I am. He doesn't entertain any of those things. He doesn't say, well, you know, we could be good friends. You know, we don't have to take this thing too far it simply says he refused, okay? And he did so knowing that that's going to anger his master's wife. I mean, he's in a precarious position, but he refused to compromise. He refused to compromise. He refused. He, uh, um, he said no. And notice the basis on which he refuses. He says, behold, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he hath to my hand. Now, some people would use that as an excuse to yield to the temptation, I mean, after all, we can get away with it. Nobody's ever going to know. Nobody's ever going to know, are they? But he says, no, I can't do that. Look at verse 9. He says, there's none greater in this house than I. That's a pretty bold statement, and no doubt it was true. No one's greater than I. Neither has he kept anything back from me, but what? So out of all, all the things that he could have, At his disposal, there's only one thing that Potiphar has said you can't have. (laughs) Only one thing. Does that sound familiar? It should, because it goes all the way way back to the Garden of Eden. Go with me to Genesis now. Genesis chapter 2. And Mark, would you read verses 16 and 17? Genesis 2, 16 and 17.
1: Sure. Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest, Thereof thou shalt surely die.
0: OK, so they had free run of the garden, could freely eat of all the trees, except for one. They're in a perfect environment, but somehow some way the serpent was able to get them to focus in on that one thing they couldn't have. Notice how different Joseph is. Joseph said, "There's only one thing I can't have." And he said, I refuse to even entertain the idea. That's amazing. Back to Genesis 39. He refused. He absolutely refused. And notice what else he says. He says, how then can I do this great wickedness against God and sin against God? Notice he called it what it is. He didn't say we can't have this indiscretion. He says, this is wicked. Now, how do you think that sat with Potiphar's wife? I mean, probably not well. I mean, she's already being scorned, but now he's telling her she's a pagan. You know, she's a heathen. So now I want to talk about the, uh, the uh, well, let's, let's look at this slide here. Notice what he said, how can I sin? Notice who Joseph's sin would be against. You see that? How can I sin against who? God. Now, you might think Joseph has every reason to be upset with God. I mean, after all, he had a dream. He's been thrown into a pit. His brothers beat him up, took his robe, sold him as a slave. Now he's a slave in Potiphar's house. He might have every reason to be bitter against God. You know, you can either get bitter or you can get better. You can't do both. But apparently, Joseph has maintained his relationship with the Lord despite his setbacks. And I I can't help but think that those dreams that God gave him were sustaining him. He's thinking, you know, God, I don't understand what's going on but I know that I know that I know you gave me these dreams, and I don't know how you're going to bring it about, and I'm not going to try to uh, work it out in my mind, but I'm just trusting you, Lord, that you're in control of this. But, but Joseph, notice, he says, I, he doesn't say we can't sin against Potiphar. He says, I can't sin against God. Uh, Genesis 26 Uh, Mark, would you read this? And I'll give you the the context here. This is another time when Abraham has lied about Sarah and said that she's his sister and Abimelech has taken her into the harem, okay? He hasn't hasn't had relations with her yet and God's going to
1: appear to him in a dream. All right, would you read that, Mark? Genesis 20, verse six. And God said unto him in a dream, Yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me. Therefore suffered I thee not to touch her.
0: Well, that's powerful there. God kept him from sinning against God. He said, I kept you from touching you. You know, we need to be praying this kind of prayers too. Lord, lead me not into temptation. Help me to stay out of my own way. David, however, David didn't do so well with his temptation, did he? He saw, he saw, He lusted. He wanted, and he took it for himself. And he thought he had gotten away with it. He thought he had gotten away with it. And then Nathan the prophet confronts him and says, You're the man. And he rehearses all the good things that God had done for David. You know, that's one reason we ought not sin against God. Remember all the good things he's done for us. James said that. Remember the goodness of God. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from God. When David finally does repent, and it's recorded... In Psalm 51, I love Psalm 51. I don't know if you've ever prayed that prayer. I've prayed it to God many, many times. Uh, David's prayer prayer of repentance. Now keep in mind, David has sinned greatly against Uriah. I mean, he stole his wife and also he had Uriah murdered. God held him accountable for Uriah's murder. So he sinned against Uriah. But notice how David understands and frames
1: the whole thing. Would you read that, Mark? Psalm 51, verse 4. Psalm 51, 4. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest.
0: David said, against you, God, against you I have sinned. And truly, that is uh, the egregiousness of our... Sin. Next, I want to talk about the persistence of the tempter, or in this case, the temptress, the persistence of the tempter. Notice it says in verse 10, it came to pass as she spoke to Joseph day by day. You see that? Day by day that he hearkened not unto her to lie with her or to be with her. Now, I love that. It says she's coming after him every day. Notice how she softened it. The first request was what? To lie with me. The next request is to lie beside of her. Some translations don't bring it out. The King James does. She's asking him to lie beside of her. And also, apparently, she's asking him just to be with her. I mean, after all, and I can just hear it. You know, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to go beyond what's, what's written. But I can just hear her say, you know what, uh, Joseph, we don't, have to, we don't have to do the deed. We can just be friends. We could just spend time together. But the Bible says that Joseph refused. He would not listen to lie beside of her or to even be with her. Some of us are going to get in trouble because we refuse to cut ties with unholy alliances. And we justify it. We say, well, I need to be in this person. This person needs to be in my life because I need to witness to them. And you're just deluding yourself because instead of you bringing them out of the pit, they're going to drag you down where they are. There are some people, and y'all are getting quiet on me, and that's okay. There are some people you cannot associate with. You, you, you simply can't. Some people you have to cut ties with because they're not good for you. And if you do, the ball says it this way, evil communications corrupt good manners. Evil associations will corrupt good manners. And I see this all the time with young ladies and, and, and men, too. They, they want to date unbelievers and they say, well, you know, I'll be a good influence on them, and, and I'll, I'll, no, and it never happens that way, does it? It's like it ends up in an unequal yoke, and it, that unbeliever doesn't come around, and uh, and oftentimes it hurts the witness of the believer. And uh, hey, I just want to get a little lighthearted, I've been kind of heavy for you. Think about Joseph, think about Rebecca, think about Rachel, think about Sarah, look, so, some people say, well, if I wait on a godly man, he's going to be ugly, if I wait on a, A a godly woman, she's going to be humbly. Hey, look, God's got some good-looking people. I mean, I should know. I married to one. (laughs) I saved that one, didn't I? (laughs) I'm just telling you, hey, you don't have to settle for the devil's leftovers. You don't have to. Because God's got some good-looking people. And and you're going to be far happier if you're not in that unequal yoke. Joseph refused to listen to her or to be with her day after day. And it says that, uh, that she was persistent. How many of you know that just because you resist temptation one time doesn't mean the devil won't come back again? I mean, you can have victory one day, but guess what? You wake up, and then here it is in your face again. And, here, and that's what we see, the persistence of the tempter. Now, this is from Judges, and this is Samuel. I'm, excuse me, Samson. Now, Samson is a classic example of not knowing how to deal with temptation. And Delilah at this point, interesting to me, it never says that Delilah was pretty. The Bible often points out that people are pretty or good looking. It never says that Delilah was beautiful. It only says that she was able, that Samson was able to lay his lap in her head. And, uh, and women, I can tell you this, sometimes the man's not, he's not looking somewhere else because there's somebody prettier than a spouse. It's because he's looking for somebody that can be, he can be intimate with and share his heart with. And apparently Samson had found that in Delilah. He had found some comfort and some peace in her lap, not knowing that it was going to bring about his destruction. Okay. Now notice what it says in uh, Judges 16, 16. Judges 16,
1: verse 16. And it came to pass when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him so that his soul was vexed unto death. (laughs) So... (laughs) So she kept on and on and on, and it says Samson was just,
0: he was vexed to death. Now some of you husbands are thinking, you know, my wife's been telling me all week long three or four times this week to take out the trash, now, if I read and I'd just rather die than hear it one more time. But this is the serious business here. And she's already proven that she's going to tell his secret, if you've ever read the story. She's already told the secret three times, so she thinks. But now he yields because he's tired of dealing with it. And it gets real easy when the devil just persists and persists to give in, but he doesn't. Now, uh, Satan tempted Jesus. And we know of three temptations that he, he leveled at Jesus. But you know what? Even though it's not recorded, there may have been others, other times. And,
1: and I, to prove it to you, I wanted to, uh, Mark to read from Luke 4. Luke 4, verse 13. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. <laughs>
0: Notice those last few words there for a season. You know, amen, it's good when the devil leave you alone for a little while. Hallelujah. <laughs> I mean, just to give you a little break, a little breathing room. But don't get too comfortable because he's coming back. He's coming back to, to try to uh, do his thing. All right, we've talked about the persistence of the tempter. Now let's talk about the potential for disaster. Verse 11. Came to pass about this time, that Joseph went into the house to do his business, and there was nobody there. None of the men of the house were with him. You know, Satan is looking to get you in that place of isolation at the right place at the right time so he can put all the pressure on you. Now, I don't know how you need to personally safeguard your own life. For everybody, it's different. I know for me as a pastor, I don't counsel uh, females one-on-one if there's nobody else present. And, uh, and, and Misty and I are careful to coordinate counseling stuff. And, you know, people are going to be there. The doors are going to be open. I'm not behind closed doors with, with people. Now, Billy Graham wouldn't even get in an elevator with a woman. Um, and I don't take it that far. Um, you know, I joke about being good looking, but I'm not worried about anybody trying to seduce me at the hospital between the emergency room and the cath lab, you know. So I, I will ride the elevator with a woman. Um, <coughs> But, uh, but hey, and we laugh about it, but praise God for men like Billy Graham that have standards, you know? It says, I won't do this, but, but you have to decide, you have to, and you have to decide this before you're in that situation. Because if you wait till you're in it, it's too late. So anyway, <clears throat> the potential for disaster. But notice in verse 12, she caught him by the garment, saying, lie with me, so here again, now this she's really turned up the intensity, hasn't she? She's no longer just asking and, and begging and pleading, but now she's grabbed him <laughs> physically. And who knows but what she may not have any clothes on, you know? What does he do? It says um, She caught him by the garment, saying, "Lie with me." And the Bible says he left his garment in her hand, and he did what He fled. He fled. And he and I like how the King James says, he got him out. <laughs> he got him out. Y'all remember our good old friend Kenny Rogers, the king of Botox? Remember him? He had a song that was popular. <laughs> I loved old Kenny, but that, toward the end there, his face was pulled tighter than a piece of saran wrap. But anyway, he, uh, he had a song, and that song went something like this. He said, you got to, Know when to hold them. You gotta know when to fold them. You gotta know when to walk away, and know when to run. run. This is a time to run. <laughs> Paul tells the church at Corinth that they had problems with sexual immorality. First Corinthians
1: six eighteen. Would you read that for us, Mark? First Corinthians six verse eighteen. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. That he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Yeah. It's
0: not cowardly to run from sexual immorality. As a matter of fact, it's the bravest thing you can do. It's the most honorable thing you can do. Paul told his young protege, Timothy, same
1: thing. A young man probably a lot like Joseph. Would you read that, Second Timothy? Second Timothy 2, verse 22. Flee also youthful lust, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace, with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart.
0: Amen. You got to run. You got to refuse, number one, and then you got to run. Don't entertain it. Don't rationalize it. Don't say, oh, we can just hang out together. You know, most affairs they say happen in the workplace. People are spending a lot of time together <clears throat> in intimate situations and and, uh, and you see this a lot with law enforcement and, and, and people who are in jobs where they're spending a lot of time with coworkers, you know, 12 and 13 and 14 hour shifts and they're in these high adrenaline situations. You got to be careful. Now, and I understand I'm not saying all firefighters are bad. Or, thank God for firefighters, amen. I'm not saying policemen are bad. I thank God for policemen. But we gotta be careful when we're in this environment. And I hear people using these terminologies and it, and it just makes me sick because I know they're setting themselves up for disaster. I'll hear somebody talking about their work wife. You know, have you heard that expression? Somebody says, well, so and so is my work wife or so and so is my work husband. And that's the cute little way of saying we've got this little special relationship on the job. And listen, if you're not careful, that thing will drift off into a place where it ought not be. You don't need to be confiding things to people other than your spouse. You don't need to be carrying on these uh, secret conversations. Listen to me. An affair starts as an emotional thing before it starts before it ever is an, a physical thing, okay? I'm, and I don't know why God's got me sharing all this stuff with you here today and don't look around and wonder who I'm preaching at because who knows? I may be preaching to somebody out on Facebook that's watching on Tim Buck too. So if you're out there, listen. I'm trying to tell you something. God's trying to tell you. But listen to me refuse and run when faced with it. Don't entertain these these, uh, ideas. Okay. Now, let's talk about the plot for revenge. You know, it's been said, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And Potiphar's wife is no different. It came to pass when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and was fled forth, that she called unto the men of her house. Now, notice she's not calling for Potiphar. She's calling for the men of the house. That's interesting. And spake unto them, saying, See, he. Notice how she refers to her husband in the third person. She doesn't say Potiphar. She doesn't say my husband. She says he. You can almost hear an air of contempt in her voice. Furthermore, she says he. Hath brought in a Hebrew unto, notice the pronoun there, us. Do you see that? She's trying to get them on her side. That's what evil always tries to do. Evil always wants to try to get somebody on their side. And she's trying to appeal to them. And she says, he's brought them in here to mock us and came in to lie with me. And I cried with a loud voice. And she laid up his garment. It came to pass when he heard it. I lifted up my voice and cried. Then he left his garment with me and fled, got out. And she laid up his garment by her until his Lord came home. Mm. It's amazing to me how she has portrayed herself as the, as the victim. We talk a lot about nar- narcissism. You hear that word a lot, you know, thrown about, narcissist. I'm going to tell you the true definition of a narcissist, because I know I've met plenty of them, I've pastored a few. And and here's something that's always true uh, with a narcissist. They always claim to be the victim even though they're the villain. Always, always, always. They always claim to be the victim when they are truly the villain. And it's as old as time, my friend. Go back to Genesis 3, and I've got it up on the board. You don't have to turn there. But Mark, would you read Genesis 3, verses 12 and 13?
1: Genesis 3, verses 12 and 13. And the man said, The woman... Whom thou gavest to be with me, she gavest me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. So notice,
0: Eve was the first one to eat, but God came to Adam. And Adam, you know, he, said, he asked Adam, he said, Did you eat of that tree that I told you not to? And all Adam had to do was say, yes. That's all he had to say. That's all God was asking from him. But what did Adam say? He said, no, it's the woman. But not just the woman. It's the woman that you gave me. In other words, God, it's your fault. Everything was perfect. It was just me and you, God. And I laid down and took a nap, and I woke up, and I was married. You thought you had no choice in the matter. You know? How'd you like lay down, go to sleep, wake up and you're married? Praise God. Be okay if she's pretty, right? <laughs> but anyway, um, Adam says, it's, it's your fault, God. It was okay when it was just me and you, but now you got her in the mix. And she's ruined everything. And then Eve, not to be outdone, she said, well, hey, we're playing the blame game. She said, hey, it's the serpent's fault. So it's like the old preacher said, Adam blamed Eve, Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. So he just took his punishment and crawled on his belly. But, but here's the thing the, the, the narcissist, the evil person, they're always the victim, but never the villain. They can't see themselves in the story. All right. Now let's, let's talk about the garment, verse 18. It says, I I came to pass as I lifted up my voice and cried that he left his garment with me and fled out. This is going to be the second time in Joseph's life that a garment is going to be used to lie on Joseph. It was done earlier with his robe of many colors. Now it's his his robe um, that he wears in Potiphar's house. So there's a a symmetry here. Now verse 19, it came to pass when his master, that's Potiphar, when he heard the words of his wife, which she spake unto him, saying, After this manner did thy servant to me, it says his wrath was kindled, or his anger burned hot. But I want you to notice something. It doesn't say he was mad at Joseph, there's a conspicuous absence there. It just says he was angry. Now, here's what I think, and I'm going to give you some scripture to back it up, because you don't care what I think, right? But I'll tell you what I think. I think Potiphar's mad because he knows what kind of woman he's married to. This guy's no dummy. I mean, he's the captain of the executioners. He's a chief official, a pharaoh. He is a shrewd fella. And I think he knows that his wife's got a wandering eye. I think he knows what kind of lady she is. And you can see the dynamic of their relationship, the way she refers to him. You know, he brought this Hebrew in here to mock me and to mock us. And I think the relationship was strange, strange, I think Potiphar was really angry because now she had forced his hand and he's about to lose his best asset. That's what I think. He knows what kind of person Joseph is. That's why he put him in charge of everything he had. He knew. He knew this was not true, but she had forced his hand. To save face, Potiphar's got to do something. Now keep in mind, what is Potiphar's role? He's not just a member of the royal He's the chief of the executioners. If he thought Joseph had done this, now the crimes and, uh, punishment for a crime like this in Egypt, it would have brought about the death penalty. One reason our, our nation is in the, the tank like it is is because we don't punish crime. We, we encourage it, but I, I, you know, I can't go there. We don't have time for that. But it, that would have been the punishment for a crime like this if it were true. And if it was his wife and he believed it, you think he would have thought twice about killing Joseph? No. He's an executioner. He's angry, but with who? Now, in verse 20, I want to talk about uh, Joseph as the prisoner of the Lord. Joseph is the prisoner of the Lord. Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison. Now, this word for prison is no ordinary word. It's the word it means It's the prison in the royal palace. We might think of it as a place where important people... We might think of it as a white-collar prison, but it wouldn't, doesn't quite fit. But this is where important people are kept. And that's going be, to become very important next week because there's two important people that are going to have dreams and they're going to need Joseph's help. So all of this is a setup. But um, he's put into this prison, so I'm going to talk about the prisoner of the Lord. Now, it's interesting to me, when Paul, Paul frequently found himself in prison, did he not? I mean, he's always being brought before some king. Festus, Felix, Agrippa, you know, you name it. And Paul spent a lot of his time, the latter part of his ministry, as a prisoner. But Paul never called himself the prisoner of Caesar, the prisoner of Felix, the prisoner of Agrippa. He never referred to himself in that way. Notice how he refers to himself.
1: Mark, would you read that? Second Timothy 1, 8. 2 Timothy 1, verse 8. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Sounds like good advice, doesn't it?
0: Sounds like kind of advice that Joseph could have taken. Paul was a prisoner of the Lord. Now, Psalm 105, you don't have to turn there, but Psalm 105 gives us a little example of what it was like for Joseph when he was a prisoner. We're almost done here. Stick with me. And I love these little, I call them Easter eggs, uh, little things that you learned that you didn't read in Genesis. Uh, In Psalm 105, uh, verse 18, this is talking about uh, Joseph, by the way. I encourage you to read
1: this on your own time. But Mark, would you read that? Psalm 105, verse 18, whose feet they hurt with fetters. He was laid in iron. So apparently Joseph's
0: imprisonment was not comfortable. He was in shackles. He was laid in iron, perhaps on his neck. He had an iron brace of some kind. So don't think, you know, I said a white-collar prison, but don't think that Joseph was lifting weights and, you know, looking at social media on Wi-Fi or something. I mean, he was, this was not a a comfortable thing that he was going through. Nevertheless, he's the prisoner of the Lord. (coughs) And, uh, I want you to notice the last, um, Last three verses, and pay attention to the symmetry here. It's very similar to the first six verses of the chapter. So my last point here is the presence of Jehovah. This is what's gonna make all the difference, the presence of Jehovah. Verse 21, he's now found himself in the prison. He's shackled with irons, but it says, but the Lord was with Joseph. He was with him when he was sold down to Egypt and placed in the Potiphar's house. He's with Joseph now that he's gone into the prison. The Lord is with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And notice we see the same kind of thing happening that happened with Potiphar. Look at this. The keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison. And whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. Are you seeing a pattern here? No matter what happens to Joseph, he still rises to the top. I'll tell you something. At this point, Joseph's reputation has been ruined. His reputation has been ruined. Everybody that he's worked with, uh, that he's come in contact with, they've heard, they've heard that Joseph is a rapist. That's what they've heard. I'll tell you something, be very slow to believe an evil report against a person that you've known to be a good person all your life. We're we're so quick to want to believe the worst. I don't know what it is in us, but whenever we hear something about somebody, what do we always say? Well, there must be true. Or what do we say? Where there's smoke, there must be, you know, there must be some truth. There's a rumor, there must be some truth in it. There was a lot of rumors going around about Joseph, but guess what? Not a one of them were true. Be very careful to believe evil things about good people that you've known to be righteous people in the past. Joseph's reputation has taken a hit, but you know what hasn't taken a hit? His character. Reputation is what other people think you are. Your character is what you really are. And see, Joseph's reputation has been marred. Probably a lot of them still didn't believe it because they knew who Joseph was. But his reputation had been marred, but guess what? His character was intact. And so he was a better man in that prison than his brothers were lollygagging back in the promised land. The Lord was with him. In the verse 23, the keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand because the Lord was with him. Notice again, the the, the, the keeper of the prison observed that God's hand was on his life. People can tell if God's hand is on your life or not. You don't need to go around bragging, oh, I'm anointed. I, people email wanting to come sing or preach. We're anointed. Well, guess what? If you're anointed, I can tell if you're anointed or not. And it's not because you tell me you're anointed. I'll, I can see it in your life. I can see it in your ministry. I can hear it in your preaching, whether you're anointed or not. And the, the, which he did, the Lord, whatever he did, the Lord made it to prosper. So here we go. Joseph, no matter where he falls, no matter where he goes, he rises to the top, not because he's so, got so much ingenuity, though he does, not just because he's a hard worker, but he is, but because the Lord was with him. Now I'm going to tell you what, I don't care what circumstance you find yourself in, life, God will put you and I into humbling situations. Very humbling. I had one just a few weeks ago that I, I'll share with you if you care to know about it. I've told some of you. I was in a situation just very embarrassing, very embarrassing. Uh, it didn't happen here, thank God. Uh, the day's still young though, right? I mean, we, we, we hadn't concluded this service, but I, it, it, it happened somewhere else and it was highly embarrassing, but you know what? I can look back and say, hey, <laughs> this is probably for my good. <laughs> God's showing me something. He's working something in my character. Joseph's character was untouched by all the stuff around him. And something else, one last point. We, remember Joseph is a type of Christ? Now, Joseph has been falsely accused, amen? There's no truth in any of it. Do you hear Joseph pleading and screaming with anybody? He doesn't say, hey, I'm innocent. He simply takes what's been dealt to him. And I want to submit to you that this is a type of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He appeared in these mock trials. I think there were six of them. And they're falsely accusing him. And all the while, Jesus, is is he arguing back with them? No, he's keeping his mouth silent. The people at Calvary—they're wagging their teeth at him. They're—they're—they're they're, they're gnashing their teeth and they're hurling their insults at him. And if you're the son of God, come down. But Jesus does not respond in kind. Mark, would you read that last uh,
1: last two scriptures there? First Peter two verses twenty three and twenty four. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed Himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. Amen. That's a good
0: segue into our invitation here this morning. The Lord Jesus Christ, he suffered more than anybody has ever suffered. He suffered public ridicule, He suffered physical uh, torment. He suffered emotional hurt of rejection even by his own family and ultimately the humility and the most humbling, terrifying death that was reserved only for the worst of criminals, death on a cross. And do you know why he did all of that? He did all of that so that you and I could one day be saved. Jesus Christ paid it all for you and me. He went to the pit for us so that he could keep us out of the pit. Amen. Jesus Christ came to this world. He lived a perfect life. He was tempted like Joseph, but, but Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are. One major difference. This is different from Joseph even. Joseph won the victory here, but there's only one man that was ever tempted in every point yet with no sin, and his name is Jesus Christ. And Jesus took his perfect sacrifice to Calvary. He wore the crown of thorns. He was crucified he was buried and he rose again the third day. God demonstrating that his sacrifice was perfect in that he raised Jesus from the dead. Seen over 500 people at one time, would hold up in any court of law. And that same Jesus is now at the right hand of the Father. Would you stand? That same Jesus is now at the right hand of the Father and he's got his arms. He, he's not stretched out on the cross anymore. He's at the right hand of the Father with his arms stretched out wide. And he says, all who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. And so if you want to be saved today, if you want to have your life transformed from the inside out, you come just as you are and say, Lord, save me. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he will. There may be a Christian here today. You're disillusioned. You're disappointed. You're depressed. You're wondering, "What well, God, what are you doing? God, I thought that was a plan for my life, and I've been detoured but in the words of Warren Wiersbe, I'm gonna share this last thing with you. In God's program, a detour does not mean that you're done for. So don't lose heart. And if you need anything from the Lord, this altar is open. Would you come? <laughs>